If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them? Turn with me once again to the book of Revelation and to chapter 3 as we continue our work through the seven letters to the churches there in Asia Minor, the modern-day country of Turkey. And today we come to the sixth letter written, and I have entitled today's sermon, The Frail Yet Faithful Church There in Philadelphia. And before we get to that text, though, uh, while you're making your way there, I, I, I pondered a question this week that I rolled around in my head, and I just wanted to share with you a little bit of what I was thinking about when I was preparing today's sermon. I was thinking, what kind of church would Jesus look for if he were on earth today? If he were walking around or driving around our streets and he was looking for a church that he could join and become part, what do you think he would be looking for? Would he look for a rural church out in the country somewhere? Or would he look for more of a cosmopolitan church or a suburban church like us? Would he be more attracted to a mega church where there were multiple thousands of people there? Or would he be more interested in a, a smaller house church? Would he prefer multi-site where the same church meets on multiple locations? Or would he prefer a, a church plant to be a part of? Would he be influenced by a steeple on top of the building? Or would he be more interested in a storefront look? Would the church have pews? Or would it have stadium seats? Or just chairs? Would they open hymnals and sing from that? Or would they project their words on a screen? What, what kind of church would Jesus prefer? I think that's a pretty good question to roll around in your mind and to think about. And if we look back on the letters that the Lord Jesus wrote to the churches that we've been studying here in the book of Revelation, we've looked at five already. We have the sixth one today and the Lord willing one more next Sunday. If we look at all of them as a composite, I think we will come to recognize that many of the criteria and the measurements that are often used to determine the church where a person decides to join and become part, well, those things are quite different from those that Jesus uses. In fact, looking back across this study of these letters, it would be safe to say that none of those things that I listed for you earlier mattered to Jesus much at all. The church is, as one has put it, or the truth is, as one has put it, when, when, when Jesus looks at a church, he's not studying outward things. He looks for the deeper signs of growing faith and fervent love and abiding hope. He wants his churches to be motivated by love, to be founded on the truth, to be strong under pressure and unashamed of his name. We get a sense of just how important those characteristics are when we come to this sixth letter that he writes to this church in Philadelphia in verses 7 through 13. And what I would remind you of before... We read this letter as something that I, I, I said to you at the beginning when we kicked off this study in, the book of Revela in, in this book of Revelation over these churches. And I, and I said this to you then, that, that the Jesus that we read about here 
is the one who walks among the seven lampstands, which are the churches. He's the one who holds the stars in his hand. And he is the same one who died for the church and rose again that he might redeem the church. And since that is true, then what we come to realize is that the Lord's assessment and his evaluations are the only ones that really matter. His criteria, his measurements, they supersede any of those other characteristics that we might deem to be important. And therefore, we must, we must pay attention to them. So let's do that. Let's read this letter to the church in Philadelphia beginning in verse 7 here. Hear the word of God, which, by the way, this letter contains not one scintilla, not one jot, not one tittle of a word of condemnation. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I Know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Lord and our Father, we thank you so much for loving us. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us and raising from the, from the grave that we might have eternal life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to us, drawing us into this, into this faith of which we are able to stand before you. We don't stand in our own goodness. We don't stand in our own merit. We stand only in that which Jesus has provided us, his righteousness and his righteousness alone. So now as we come to this place where the Bible's open before us, I pray that you would keep our hearts open and our minds open and our ears open just as we have read so that we might hear what the Spirit says to the churches and that we might apply this truth to our own lives. May you be glorified. May you be honored in everything that we read and say. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So I've tried to remain somewhat faithful to this outline that I've given you uh, week after week after week. And by the way, how many of you noticed last week that the outline didn't turn out exactly like you hoped that it would? You go ahead and raise your hand. Let me know. I mean, go ahead and be honest. If you noticed that there was something missing last, I did that just to see if y'all was paying attention. 
Actually, what I did is included an extra point by accident in the outline. So if you didn't get anything in those blank spaces, it's okay. You weren't supposed to. Everything went just the way it was supposed to go, except that I sent the wrong outline to be printed. But I think, based upon my reaction from the first service, I think the right outline's in your bulletin today. So everybody will be happy. But in order to kind of keep in the same format that I've been giving you, notice the first point. The first point there I've already revealed to you is the church that we're going to look at today and the church is the church in Philadelphia. We don't know a whole lot about the church there um, other than what we read in this passage, actually. But we know a little bit about the city of Philadelphia. You may be aware that Philadelphia is, is, is means in Greek the, the city of brotherly love. But more importantly, here in Asia Minor, the, the, the city of Philadelphia was more known as the gateway of the Orient. The, the, the city itself of Philadelphia was, was founded in the 2nd century B.C. And it was founded with the intention of being used as a base uh, for which to spread Greek learning and Hellenistic culture to the world. And based upon the ruins that have been uncovered of this city there in, in what is modern-day Turkey, um, we know that Philadelphia was a beautiful city. We know that it was a cultural center, that it boasted of, of several impressive columns and, and pillars that, that populated throughout the city there. But it was also located near a, a series of, of volcanoes. And as a result of that, the volcanic action that continued to permeate in that area caused great earthquakes to take place. In fact, in 17 AD, the entire city of Philadelphia was nearly completely destroyed by a terrible earthquake that took place and, and destroyed that, that whole city and areas around it. And so this was a, a beautiful city, a, a cultural uh, center of, of, of Greek learning, but it was also a city that, that dealt with a lot of, of struggles with regard to the physical aspects of the volcanic action and also the earthquakes. And that just kind of gives us a little bit of background of, of this church, where this church was located. And where it found herself. And, and it's to this church that Jesus writes. We don't know a lot about it, as I said, except for what Jesus says. But we know about her Savior. Because Jesus reveals something important about himself. Notice the second point on your outline. It's Christ's character that he reveals there in verse 7. Verse 7 says this. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. There are three things that I believe Jesus reveals about himself there. I'm going to give them all to you in rapid form. He is, he is holy, he is true, he is sovereign. He is holy, he is true, he is sovereign. By declaring himself to be holy, Jesus is declaring his purity. He's declaring his separateness. He is separate from sin. He is undefiled. He is without spot and without blemish. By declaring himself to be true, Jesus is communicating that he is trustworthy, that he is reliable, that he is dependable. And in, in contrast to those who make false claims about themselves, Jesus is saying, I'm the genuine one. I am the authentic one. That is why he could step up and say, I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but by me. The reason he could say that is because he is the true one. But then we're given this description of him being the one who possesses the key of David. And when he uses that key, he says, I open and no one can shut. And I shut and no one can open. Now this, this text comes from the prophet Isaiah. You may want to write it down and go back and check it for yourself. It comes from Isaiah 22 verse 22. 
where there we read that the prophet says this, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. Now that specific prophecy in Isaiah chapter 22 was written about a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim winds up becoming a forerunner or he becomes one who prefigures or foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that we can know that is because it was also in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9 that we read these words that the government will be upon his shoulder. In verse 7 we read of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time and forever. So what we recognize is that Jesus is equating himself. Jesus is declaring himself to be the holy one, to be the true one, and he is the sovereign one. He is the one who allows entrance into the throne. He is the one who is able to open the door and no one can shut it and shut the door and no one can open it. He alone has the key that allows entrance into the presence of the king. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 verse 9, I am the door. And he goes on and says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he, and he will go in and have pasture. So when Jesus introduces himself in this way to the church in Philadelphia as the holy one and the true one and the sovereign one, we recognize that he is declaring unequivocally that he is God and that he alone is the way to the Father. But then notice what he says. He says, I see What's going on? I know your works, he says. And in other words, he's able to see what the church in Philadelphia have been doing, what, what they've been taking advantage of the opportunities that have been placed before them. In fact, he says this, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. He uses sort of the same metaphor that he had used in verse 7 about being the only way to the, to the king as the one who opens and no one can shut and shut and no one can open. Well, here he uses that metaphor, but he twists it. He uses it a little differently. Here the metaphor seems to take on the meaning of evangelistic opportunity. I have placed before you an opportunity to, be, to share the gospel, and it is an opportunity for you to walk through. That's the same way that that same metaphor is used in other places throughout the New Testament. At the end of Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas came back from the missionary journey in which they had been engaged, they reported to the church in, in Jerusalem, they said that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In other words, it was God who had presented an opportunity for the evangelism of the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9, Paul tells the church in Corinth that he intends to stay in the city of Ephesus because a great and effective door has opened to me. In other words, I've got an opportunity to really share the gospel here. And then in Colossians chapter 4 verse 3, Paul asked for the church there to pray for him that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. And so it's, he's praying for a door of evangelism to open. So an open door is a metaphor that can be used to describe the opportunity of gospel advancement. And I believe that that is the way that Jesus uses it here in verse 8. He had opened a door that no one could shut to this little seemingly insignificant church there in the city of Philadelphia. 
And in light of that, we see the next thing that Jesus tells them. Note the third point on your outline. It is his commendation of them. He commends them in verse 8 that although they had a, a little strength, they had nevertheless kept his word. They had not denied his name. In other words, though they had been frail, they were nevertheless found to be faithful. They were frail, but they were faithful. Literally, the Greek word there describing the church is the word mycros dunamis. Now, I love that. Micros is a word that we, we get the word micro from. Micro in our English language means small. It means little. Dunamis, we get the word dynamite from that Greek word. It means power. It means strength. Jesus says, you are micros dunamis. You are of small strength. Ray Pritchard has written this. He says, we can assume they didn't have much money. They didn't have very many influential people in their church. But nevertheless, notice what he commends them for. He says, they nevertheless had great faith. And it is their expression of faith that the Lord commends. G. Campbell Morgan, he provides this commentary. He says, the key to true Christian service demonstrated by these Philadelphian Christians was that they were faithful to go through the opened door of opportunity that was placed in front of them by Christ. And in doing so, they kept his word and refused to deny his name. In fact, he says, in this there is a revelation of the secret of success in all service. The keeping of the word and loyalty to the name. I went off script in the first service, so I'm going to do it here. Because it's Veterans Day and because when I was, went in the Navy, when I went there, I was 17 years old. When I went to boot camp, I turned 18 the day after I got out of boot camp. And the whole time you're in boot camp, they just, they called me everything but a wheelbarrow every day. But they drilled into you that you had general orders that was yours to keep. And that no matter what situation you found yourself in, they drilled those orders into your head so that you would remind yourself, these are things that I must always do. These are the orders that I must always keep. And they also drilled into you every single day that you are loyal to your country and to the flag that you represent and to the, those who are in, in, you are responsible to and your commanders. That loyalty and keeping the commands that were given to you. I can't help but see the, the parallel that exists here. That Jesus Christ commends this church in Philadelphia because he says, you have kept my word. You have obeyed the commands that I have given to you and you have not denied my name. You've been loyal to me. And here's what I want to draw your attention to. When the Lord Jesus looks at a church, what he looks for is whether or not they are using all that they have been given to help them go through the door of opportunity that he has placed in front of them. He wants to know, have you been faithful in what I have called you to do? His commendation is not based upon the size. Scholars believe that this church in Philadelphia was likely the smallest congregation of any of the seven to whom Jesus writes. His commendation is not based upon their budgets. This church was likely the least of all the others in that regard. Based upon the context 
they, like the church in Smyrna, had experienced significant persecution and not only from the Roman government, but they had been ostracized from the Jewish population and could not go into the temple. And because of that, they had likely suffered financial and material loss. Therefore, what we recognize is that our Lord's commendation, His preference is not based upon the things of which we would most likely be impressed. Rather, His commendation is based upon their faithfulness. Had they kept His word, had they they committed themselves to His truth, had they not denied His name, had they resolutely in the face of opposition gladly identified themselves with Christ. As Pritchard writes this, what is it that God honors? He honors faith. What is it that God looks for? He looks for faith. What does He reward? God rewards faith. So this church was frail, but it was faithful. And next, I want you to see the promises that Jesus makes to them in light of that. The fourth point is Christ's commitments. Notice, first of all, that Christ commits to vindicating them. He will vindicate. He says in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews or are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. We noted this a few weeks ago when we studied that letter to the church in Smyrna. That, and evidently, it happened in both places that that the Jews of the cities of Smyrna and Philadelphia became jealous of the Christians. And they began slandering them. They began spreading false rumors and misrepresenting their beliefs. And these enemies of Christ were creating havoc for these Christians. And as such, Jesus identified them with their master, Satan. But notice that the Lord promises to humble these enemies. Not only his enemies, but the enemies of his church. He will bring about their humiliation by declaring his unique and his special love of this church in Philadelphia. You see, while these pawns of Satan may oppose Christ and they may oppose his church, the scripture clearly teaches that all who belong to him will one day be vindicated because, as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow in heaven and in earth and those under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ will vindicate his church. Notice also he commits to protecting his church. He will protect. Jesus says in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is one of those verses that has spawned much argument and debate as to how it should be interpreted. The two main issues that create the the debate in this passage is what does Jesus mean when he says that he will keep them from the hour of trial And secondly, what exactly does Jesus mean by the hour of trial, which he says will come upon the whole world? And let me just say that when we come to places like this in Scripture where there is much debate, we should come to these verses with humility, asking that God will grant us wisdom and understanding 
rather than coming to these verses with dogmatism and with arrogance. With that being said, here is how I believe this verse is intended to be understood in light of the context. And I'm working my way backward because Jesus describes the hour of trial that is, that is not something localized to just the Philadelphian believers. Rather, it is an hour of trial that will be experienced by the whole world, he says. And so I take that to mean that the trial which Jesus says and refers to here is universal in its scope. Most Bible scholars see this hour of trial as a prophetic reference to the great tribulation which will precede Jesus' earthly kingdom. And taken this way, Jesus promises to keep these Christians from that hour of trial. And many, and I include myself in this lot, believe that Jesus is referencing the rapture of his church out of the world before that time of tribulation occurs. However, even for those of us who hold to that interpretation, this verse still creates tension, even in those regards, as to whether Jesus means that he will remove his church before the tribulation at all ever begins, that is those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, or is he speaking of, as some would say, to something that would take place, he would rapture them out before the great tribulation would occur, which would make them a mid-tribulation rapture, or by saying that he will keep them, is Jesus saying that he will protect them so that they can persevere through the trial that will come their way and yet they will not be harmed and those would be the post-tribulation rapture people. Personally, I have always embraced the pre-tribulation rapture of the church but I will confess to you there are many who differ with me on that issue and they make compelling arguments in what they write. This is what I want you to understand from this passage. When all is said and done, what cannot be denied from what Jesus says in this text is, as Alan Johnson has written, we have a marvelous promise of Christ's protection for those who themselves has protected, same word, or kept his word by their loving obedience. Understand this. His church, he says, I will vindicate you. I will protect you. And then thirdly, he says, I will return for you. I will return. Behold, I am coming quickly. The ESV puts it a little more succinctly and says, I am coming soon. The point here is the imminence of Christ's return. It doesn't mean that we're hanging a date on it. It means that it could happen at any point and Jesus Christ could come for his church and he promises he will. Now here's the part that I really think is interesting. If you were with us last week, you'll note that what he says he will do here for the church in Philadelphia, he said basically the same thing for the church in Sardis in the previous letter. Here in verse 11, he says, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. But back up in verse 3, if you look at it, he says something similar. He says, Remember therefore how you received and how, what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not what? I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Did you notice that the command in both of those is the same? The command is to hold fast. Hold fast in light of his return. Here's the interesting thing. G. Campbell Morgan says, how different the value and application of the announcement. 
To those in Sardis, his imminent return was a warning. To these in Philadelphia, it's a promise. To the church in Sardis that was dead, it was a proclamation calculated to startle them into obedience. To the church in Philadelphia, exercising its little strength in fulfillment of his gracious will, it was a declaration calculated to comfort them in obedience. One church is threatened while another is comforted by the announcement of Christ's return. Well, that brings me to the fifth point. It's a command, and the command I've already given to you because it latches on to the return of Christ. And the fifth, the, 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 the command that Jesus gives is for them to hold fast. It's the same command he's been given to the other churches. He's telling them to hang on. Hold tightly to that which you've received. Don't let go. Don't give up. Don't give in. And this command is not only based upon the fact that Christ is coming, his imminent return is there, but it's also based upon the reward that it, that hangs on to it as well, which is the second point. He not only tells them to hold fast, he says, do not lose your reward. Do not lose your reward. Now let me point out to you, Jesus is not saying that these believers could lose their salvation. He's not saying that they could somehow go from being saved to not being saved. That's not what he's saying. Rather, as Danny Aiken has written, he is indicating that Satan or evil men could rob them of future reward if they get their eyes off Jesus or if they yield to temptation to deny his name or disobey his word. So Jesus is saying, stay with it. There is a crown that awaits you at the finish line. Stick to your guns. Keep being faithful. So if we get to this point in the letter, what we realize is that Jesus has opened a door that no man could shut. And these Philadelphian believers, though they were small, though they were weak, though they were frail, they had been faithful to use the energy and the strength that they had to take advantage of the opportunity that Christ had presented them with. And in the process, though they had experienced persecution and though they had experienced opposition, they had remained faithful to his word. They had kept it. They had refused to deny his name. They had continued to identify themselves with the Lord Jesus, even in the face of the trouble that they, they had coming their way. And as such, Jesus promised to vindicate them and to protect them and to return for them. And in the meantime, he commanded them to keep on doing what they were doing and to strive to keep their goal intact. Which leads us to the familiar point and the final point of this letter we see. It's the call to conquer and to comprehend. It's the call to conquer and comprehend. We've seen it week after week after week. Jesus says to him who overcomes. And then he goes at the very end and he says, And he who has an ear, let him hear. The overcomer and the one who listens is the one who conquers and who comprehends. And they go together. You have to understand the importance of what Jesus is saying and then go out and conquer in light of what he has said. And for those who do, notice that Jesus says what he says will accompany their obedience. First of all, those who do that will be safe and secure. You will be safe and secure. Remember these Philadelphian believers? They were accustomed to earthquakes. When I was in Japan stationed over there in the United States Navy, they had a lot more uh, earthquakes there and I remember one that, that woke us up in the middle of the night and it was strong and we were on the fourth floor in the birthing area and it was just it was huge and I just remember the entire room just shaking and it caused a big two inch crack to go through the wall and I remember thinking man this is I've never experienced anything like this in North Georgia but it was bad over there in Japan these Philadelphian believers were understanding of that they they experienced 
these earthquakes regularly. Just imagine how this promise of Jesus would have been understood to their ears. You see, one writer said that they were accustomed to running out of the city, away from the buildings, away from those columns, away from those, those things that could fall on them and kill them whenever the earthquakes came. But Jesus says, look, you're never going to have to run out again. In fact, you're going to be a pillar in the house of my God and you will never be put out again. You will have the stability that you have never known in this life. You will have it there. Not only that, but these Jews in Philadelphia had cast these believers out of the synagogue. They would not allow them to worship there. They, they kept them from being able to come into the house of God. Jesus says you're going to have a place in the temple of my God and you'll never have to be put out again. You are safe and you are secure. Not only that, but the Lord says of him who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. In other words, the second and the last point that you'll see there is that they will be named and they will be claimed. Named by Christ and claimed by him. Pritchard says this. He says, all the old names won't matter anymore. Think about it. Doctor, lawyer, professor, politician, coach, banker, teacher, famous athlete, rich man, most influential woman. None of those names will matter anymore. But neither will these. Felon, failure, hated, abandoned, humiliated, unappreciated, liar, adulterer. He goes on to write, in that great day, the blood of Jesus will wash away all the tags by which we know each other. Our good names won't matter and our bad names won't be remembered. We will all stand on the same ground, saved, redeemed, renewed, and renamed by our Lord. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, for those of you who are like me, that's good news because I'm glad that there will be things that will not be remembered about this old boy in heaven. Christ promises that he will also write upon them the name of the city of his God. It will serve as like a, like a passport serves for us. The reason that you and I can feel safe and secure inside the United States of America is because we hold a passport that says we belong there. Well, when Christ writes the name of the city of the new Jerusalem across our lives, we will be able to go into that temple and there will be no one who will be able to look and say, you don't belong here. Except to some degree they're right. Because there will not be one of us who makes it into that city who can honestly say, I deserve to be here. Not a one. Every single one of us who has the sin of our lives and we understand it, recognize that that's what excludes us from being there. That day will only come for us because of what Jesus has done, which is where we get the last thing. Jesus says, I'm not just going to write God's name on you. I'm not just going to write the city of God across you. I'm going to write my name on you. I'm claiming you as mine. And that's where we get to here. Listen, this church... 
This church wasn't like Sardis. Sardis had a reputation of being this big and grand thing. Philadelphia, they weren't the biggest. They didn't have the best programs. They didn't have a reputation. But what attracted Jesus to it? What made him prefer it? Was that in spite of all the things that everyone else would have seen as deficiencies, Jesus commended them because they had remained faithful to the open door of opportunity he had provided for them. They had kept his word and they had not denied his name. And that leads me to my sermon in the sentence, which is this. Some of you thought it would never come. (laughs) Even though it may appear weak and seemingly unimportant, the church that remains faithful to God's word and refuses to deny Christ's name will find the door of opportunity opened and the reward of God waiting. Let me close by asking you, do you have that hope? Do you have the assurance that the name of God has been written across your life? That the city, New Jerusalem, that that's where your citizenship is? Has the name of Christ been written on your life? And do you know for sure, for sure, for sure that one day he will point to you and say, that one's mine. You know what the Bible says? If you are not sure about that, the Bible says this. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Some of you in this room this morning, may need to come to grips with the fact that you do not have that personal assurance from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, then I humbly ask you to fall on your knees before him, to admit your sin, to confess him as your Lord and Savior, and to believe on him. If you have, if that is your testimony, then let me just encourage you with these words. You may feel weak, and you may feel small, And you may feel forgotten about. There may be folks that are criticizing you, poking fun at you because of your convictions. Maybe they're berating you because of your beliefs. Even so, be strong. Hold fast to what you have. Remain faithful to God's word and do not deny the name of the one who has saved you because you will always find him to be faithful to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for you calling us to a commitment to it. Thank you that you have revealed to us our need of your salvation through it and that Holy Spirit that you bring conviction into our lives from it. And so, Lord, we come before you this day and we ask that you would move in amongst the people who are in this congregation today, that your word would come alive and vibrant to them. And that, Father, that you would accomplish exactly what you desire. Faith. You come looking for faith. The question is asked in Luke 18, when he comes, will he find faith? I pray that Ivy Creek Baptist Church will be found faithful. Faithful in in doing everything that we should do in light of the door of opportunity that has been placed before us for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name, amen.